Welcome to the family with Catherine Brandt. Ralph Tobesh, MD, Hackmaster. Andy Brandt-Bernard. And Cassie Schrader. A couple of great guests coming up this hour. Corey Doctorow will join us right after this with the family. Where's the manager? Walzer Automotive presents Car Selling Secrets. Join me, Tom Bernard, and Doug Sprinthal as we talk cars, how to buy them, how to lease them, how to make the most of your money, and much more. What's it going to take to earn your business right now? Tune in every Thursday from 2 to 3 Central or download it on the Tom Bernard Podcast page. I don't know. I think I'm going to have to think about it. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? At, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw and Bryant. Aren't you just rocking out today? Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest, Corey Doctor. How are you doing, Corey? Oh, great. It's lovely to be on. It's lovely to have you on, Corey, except for the fact that I'm looking at the book. You, uh, no depression or anxiety coming my way, I hope, when we talk about the present and the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really sure where, you know, uh, I, I want to know about some of this stuff, but uh, the book is called Radicalized. It is out now, as a matter of fact. So what's it all about, Corey? Well, you know, it's funny you should mention anxiety. I I call this my Trump derangement syndrome book that, you know, (laughs) as as all of us have spent, you know, we've all spent the last couple of years just having like headlines about terrible things like non-consensually rammed into our eyeballs around the clock. And and it's been hard to catch our breath or, or make sense of it, you know? And so for me, when that happens, the way that I try to, to put things together is by literally making narratives, right? by, by telling stories that try to figure out where it's all coming from and where it's all going to. 
And so this book, it's got four novellas. One of them's already being made into a TV show by, by Topic, the people who published The Intercept. And, and they're Ooh. about uh, subjects that are very contemporary. You know, uh, one of them is about refugees whose who subsidized housing is filled with these nightmarish Internet of Things appliances that suck every available penny out of their pockets. So the dishwasher only washes dishes from one vendor, and the toaster won't toast your bread if it doesn't come from an authorized bakery. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's funny and, and dystopian, but it's also, you know, you, you, you already have a phone in your pocket that will only uh, run apps if they come from one app store. Your car yeah. probably will only allow authorized mechanics to read its diagnostic codes. Uh, and, you know, Johnson & Johnson just got regulatory approval for an artificial pancreas that only takes one kind of proprietary insulin. So we're turning, you know, human oh beings into God. walking inset printers. Oh, God. Corey, so, what are we doing? What yeah. are we doing? Well, so what, what these stories are about is, is in part about how, how the important thing about technology isn't what it does, it's who it does it for and who it does it to. You know, it sure. would be great to have uh, a, an artificial pancreas that could detect whether or not the insulin that you put into it is the insulin that you thought you were putting into it, right? And, and would reject the, the vendors that you believe to be substandard. It's just a matter of who has control over that decision. If that's the thing a vendor gets to impose on you, they're just not going to be wise stewards. You know, you don't have to be like Karl Marx to say, oh, well, if, if companies get to decide what you can do and can't do with their product, they will force you to arrange your affairs to benefit their shareholders, even if it comes at your expense. Right. And, and so, you know, this is about people like seizing the means of technology, right, D taking control and uh and and directing their technological destiny instead of being prisoners of it and and about what happens when they don't you know some of these stories are meant to be inspirations and some of them are meant to be warnings but they're all meant to point us in the same direction which is that if if you can't open it you don't own it uh if you can control it then you can make it do your bidding and that it is legitimate in a market society for people who buy things to be able to decide how they use them even if that makes the manufacturer sad yeah, I, I, I mean, case in point, I have a printer that every time I change the um, printer ink, it complains that it's the wrong manufacturer. Mm -hmm. Even though I buy the brand that I'm supposed to buy, it continually complains about mm -hmm. it and says your printer's not going to work well and it's going to probably blow up if you don't mm -hmm. use our product. You don't, you don't... It's crazy to me. But you know what? You've got it. You got it easy, right? Because there's a bunch of HP and Epson printers where the manufacturers actually snuck updates into the printers after they sold them. They, they disguise them as security updates that uh, detect third-party ink and just refuse to use them. Uh, and, and you know, they did this to tens of millions of users. So you know, the, the, some of this is is about the fact that um, you know our lawmakers are increasingly beholden to a concentrated set of industries, right? It, we think of right. tech as being really concentrated because the world's got like five giant websites filled with screenshots from the other four now. But it's not just them. You know, if you look at the writer's strike in Hollywood, that's about the fact that there's only three talent agencies and they're all owned by hedge funds now. And, and right. you know, it's true in oil. It's true in, in, in shipping. It's true in, in uh, finance, you know. And, and as the grip of the super rich has crept up on our policy outcomes, our ability to make policy that reflects what everybody needs as opposed to what their shareholders want has been steadily eroded. And so, you know, some of this, some of the stories in this book are about that 
uh, tension. You know, the, the last story in the book is a, a novella called The Mask of the Red Death from the Edgar Allan Poe story. And it's about super rich preppers who understand that this can't go on. And so they're prepared for society to break down. And the way that they've prepared for it is by making luxury bunkers that they can cower in while everyone else tears each other apart and then rebuilds society. And what they learn in, in you know, the hardest way possible is that we actually have a shared destiny and that if your way of solving the problem is to hide while someone else does the hard work, that it's not going to end well for you. You know, for one thing, if there's a big mountain of corpses somewhere upstream of you, uh, you, you know, you're going to end up with cholera. And you, it doesn't matter how many guns you have, you can't shoot germs. Right. No, that is a fact. You know, I, I don't really, you know, have a dog in this fight. I tend to be pretty centrist in my, in my politics. And, uh, you know, so I'm not going to rail on one side or the other. But I, I did last night, they keep talking about this free health care for everyone. Free, they keep saying free health care for everyone. It's an, an American right. And yet when one of the candidates was questioned about it last night, he said, well, I mean, let's be honest, there's no such thing as free health care. Well, why do you keep telling us there is then? I mean, he, he disagreed with his own spewing that's been going on for so long. You must be talking about Bernie. Well, yeah, Bernie, Bernie's the one who said it, but like I said, I don't, I, I'm not, sure. you know, I'm not Republican and I'm not Democrat. I did, they, they both sides say things. It's like, that's the exact opposite of what you've been telling me for two years now. Huh. Well, you know, I'm neither of those things because I'm a dirty foreigner. I'm a Canadian, so I don't get a vote. Here. <laughs> you dirty foreigner. Uh, where'd, you, where'd you grow up? And, and I tell you what. Oh, I grew up in Toronto, and then I lived in London for 13 years. So I've, I've uh, lived under a, a variety of, of uh, socialized medicine systems, and I mm -hmm. live here now. You know, my wife works for a blue-chip company, and, and we have gold-plated insurance. And I have to tell you that we spend more on our insurance, and we get less for it than we've ever gotten mm -hmm. anywhere else. And, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, uh, one that's of the true. stories in this book is, is about the fact that Americans – spend more on their health insurance and on subsidizing health care and on administering health care than any other country in the world does, including the ones that give away free health care. And that's per capita, right? So, you know, giving mm -hmm. away health care ends up costing less, not least because of, you know, when, when the only way to get health care is to show up at uh, the ER because you don't have anything else, that's super expensive and it raises the cost for everyone. So, you know, uh, one of the stories in this book is, is about that very conundrum, about the fact that there are people who are heavily insured, like me, who um, are sometimes end up having to watch the people they love the most die slowly of preventable illnesses because the insurers they've been paying into for all these years have decided that the therapies that their loved ones need are experimental and not coverable. Mm -hmm. And this is a story about those people ending up on message boards that are nominally about um, giving people support when that happens. But they, they're radicalizing message boards. That's where the title of the collection comes from, radicalized. And, and what ends up happening is people say, well, you know, if you're, if you're so depressed about the death of this loved one and you're going to kill yourself, don't let it go to waste. Take some of them with you. And it's about the way that radicalization is talked about in the world and, and what actually happens when people are radicalized. Because the way we talk about it is as though radicalization it's like a contagion like there are people out there who have radical ideas and if you get too close to one of them the radical ideas rub off on you and you go out and do radical things undesirable things but when you actually look at the psychiatric literature when you look at, at you know boston university's case studies on suicide bombers in the west bank and the occupied territories 
you see that the biggest predictor of whether someone is a suicide bomber is whether they are suicidal, whether they have already been so traumatized that they are ready to die. And that's what makes them vulnerable to someone saying, well, uh, you know, don't let it go to waste. And you know, our reaction to radicalization, it's like that really crappy apology that goes, I'm sorry you're so angry at me. Uh, I'm not going to change my behavior, but could you please try being less angry at me? And, and when we confront people who are so traumatized that they're willing to do terrible things, our response isn't, let's figure out how to prevent future trauma and, and nip this in the bud, stop future people from showing up ready to, to, to do these awful things. Our response is, just try being less traumatized by it, would you? And, and about the inadequacy of that response. And also about like what happens when the, the uh, unspeakable acts are being committed by privileged middle-class white dudes who historically we just call those people lone, lone wolves and, and refuse to hold them responsible and to think about it as a systemic problem. And what happens when the people they're attacking are even richer than they are and, and right. you know, how that reaches the breaking point. God, it's so amazing, all of these different things that are going on with the world. You know, I, in a way, this kind of fits in. I was sitting down paying bills yesterday, and I got to my health insurance bill, and it was about seven times higher than it normally is. And I read through the document why it would be higher, and basically I got to it finally that uh, that a couple of times a year they adjust people's premiums based on the fact that others can't pay for their health insurance. So m- mine was about six, seven times higher than it normally is, so I pay that. Then I get to my... my uh, Car insurance, my car insurance is usually $400 every six months, so $800 a year. And I got to that, and it's now um, $2,500. So I I called State Mm -hmm. Farm, and I said, why is my car insurance so high? And they said, a lot of uninsured motorists now. (laughs) And everybody's complaining, well, you know, these people should help out. I understand helping people out, but do I have to pick up the entire neighborhood? I mean, good God. what? I don't really understand how companies can get away with just automatically saying, well, you know, you've got uninsured motorists, so therefore you've got to pay three times more than you normally would. Well, I, don't, I don't get that. But, but I, I think you just have to think about it as a systemic problem instead of an individual one, right? Like, like we've had 40 mm-hmm. years of yes. everything being an individual problem with individual causes and individual solutions, and it's not working, yeah. right? Like, the problem yep. with climate change isn't how much you recycle, right? It, it's the biggest, your biggest contribution to climate change is probably the car you drive to work, and probably the reason you yeah. drive that car is because your city has not decided to put in adequate uh, public transit. And it doesn't matter what you do personally, that's not going to make your car suddenly turn into a subway, right? This is a systemic right, problem with right. a collective solution, right? And we're in an age of, of unparalleled inequality, something that we haven't seen since the Gilded Age, beyond what we saw in the buildup to the French Revolution. And people, if they're not working, right, they starve or they end up on the welfare rules. And so they need their job. But their job doesn't pay enough to eat, insure their car, and pay for gas and their rent. Because rents have gone up in every city year on year as the number of landlords have dwindled, uh, rental properties have concentrated in the portfolios of a small number of uh, hedge fund uh, 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 landlords here in California, the largest landlord is, is the largest hedge fund in the world. They bought all the distressed mm-hmm. houses after the 2008, and they've raised rent oh. year on year, every year. We have an eviction epidemic. And so what are people going to do? Right? They're not going to lie down and die. Right? They want to get to work. They want to do a day's job. If, if it's not show up for work or not insure your car, 
then they're not going to insure their car. Well, now we have another problem, which is that people who can't afford to insure their cars uh, are getting hit by people who can't. And somebody needs to pay the bill. Well, you know, like there are better solutions to this, but those solutions involve a living minimum wage, right? Nobody, nobody who's working full time should have to choose between eating and insuring the car they use to get to their job. Right. 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 And so a living minimum wage and, and other systemic solutions, because they individually, you know, like, have you tried earning more money is not an answer to I can't afford my insurance, even though I'm working full time. Right. Mm -hmm. Presumably right. that person has taken the best paying job they can find. So, so our, our individual problems d don't have individual solutions. They have collective ones. And there's another story in this book that's about that, the, the story Model Minority, which is a story about a superhero, much like Superman, intervening in, the, in what would be a fatal beating by these NYPD cops, the same cops who killed Eric Garner. I sort of wrote them into the story. After mm -hmm. reading Matt Taibbi's book about, about the killing of Eric Garner, I Can't Breathe, and um, Superman, you know, he was created as an individual solution to a collective problem. These two traumatized uh, Jewish kids in Brooklyn were watching the horror of Nazism unfold across the Atlantic, and they dreamed up this kind of uh, uh, immortal, uh, unstoppable golem who would fight Nazism across the sea. And, you know, one of them was from Toronto, like me. My parents used to live on Joe Schuster Way. And, and as nice as that fantasy is to entertain, that is not how we fought Nazis, right? It wasn't one person. It was a giant global collective effort mm -hmm. that saved the world from Nazism. And Superman learns that he can't punch racism until it stops. And moreover, that by, by thinking that this problem had to have a, an individual cause and an individual answer, that for 100 years he's been part of the problem and not part of the solution. And so it, it turns from being Superman's story into the story of the uh, black man whose beating he interrupts, who becomes the fo focus of a movement, because that's how we change inequities, not with individual choice, but with movements where individuals come together to do something superhuman, right? Superhuman is when you do more than one person can do. And, and that's how the problem is resolved. And also Superman has to confront the fact that his good friend Bruce Wayne is the guy selling the predictive policing tools to the NYPD, and that's why that guy caught <laughs> the beating in the first place. Ladies and gentlemen, the book's called Radicalize. Cory Doctorow, D-O-C-T-O-R-O-W. Cory, thank you for your time. Great, great book. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much. This was absolutely a, a treat. Please, uh, I, I look forward to coming on with the next book if you guys are up for it. Absolutely. Well, come back and talk more about this book, Corey. I'd love to have you on. That'd be great. That too. Anytime. Thanks very much. All right. Talk to you guys later. All right. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. We'll be back with the family. It's Tom Bernard with CEO Michael Bilski from North American Banking Company. Michael, we spent some time talking about your free app and money transfer service, XCheck, which is just great, by the way. You can transfer money to your kid to travel home from college and lots of other uses. I got wind of another service you provide at North American Banking Company. What's this Super ID I've been hearing about? Great question, Tommy. Super ID uses your face proof and your finger proof to keep your identity and your money secure. It's really a foolproof way to protect your family and your business from identity fraud. It's simple, fast, and oh, the best part is that it's free to our customers. Super ID, super easy, and super secure. Visit nabanco.com or see my personal banker to get the scoop on XCheck and Super ID. North American Banking Company, a better banking experience. Member FDIC and an equal housing lender. 
Tom Bernard here for Whiting Clinic LASIK and Cataract. Spring is here, and there's no better time to ditch your contacts and pitch your glasses. Whiting Clinic is the place I trusted to do this for me, and it's not just me. There's a reason Whiting Clinic is the number one LASIK practice in the United States. Dr. Whiting's unsurpassed experience, the most advanced Contura laser technology, and lifetime coverage are all backed by Whiting Clinic's best price guarantee. Being the experts they are, they want to make sure you have the very best for your eyes, just like I did. Call now for Whiting Clinic's $500 off LASIK spring savings. If you're like me, not a big fan of glasses and contact lenses, then it's time you found out if you're a candidate for LASIK. And Whiting Clinic is definitely the place to go. Call 855-554-2020 today. Or visit whitingclinic.com to set up your free LASIK consultation. Remember to tell them I sent you and save 500 bucks on your LASIK. Offer expires June 21st, 2019. Good for both eyes only. Cannot be combined with any other offers. I wanted to hear the whole song, what happened to that. <laughs> the whole song? I want to hear the entire song, what's wrong with that action, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he was a hell of a guest, I thought. Yeah. It's rather frightening what we can look forward to here. Mm. Uh, the, 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 <laughs> what's frustrating to me about what he was talking about was, okay, so everybody knows why our insurance costs are so high, but nobody will do one flipping thing about it. Yeah, How does that make any sense? Why should administrators be making millions and millions and millions of dollars and presidents of hospitals and all the kind of stuff where people can't even afford to pay their deductibles to go have medical treatment? It makes no sense. Right. But right. But, but, but but he said, oh, people were – he insinuated that people were starving because they can't pay for a couple of different things. But the biggest pop, biggest problem among the poor is obesity. Yes. So there's there there's really there's a bit a of a of little bit of a on. disconnect in some of the things he said, and I, I went I, yeah. I wanted to ask him if I didn't be too confrontational, but was he going to Canada now for his care? Because he's not getting what get what he thinks his money's worth. You're getting very right. good care, exceptional right. care here, and you have recourse if there's a problem. You know, I don't know you have that right. in Canada. I mean, there's there's a lot of pieces you know that pieces to the system that you know he conveniently sort of left out that. You know, I, you know, but I, you know, should granted, I think it's uh, the supposition of some of the things he talked about was important to know, and I think that we should know about those sort of things. Yeah, I think we should stop well, subsidizing yeah. the world's health care. That would help. There you that go. That would be good. Well, I mean, Canada's yeah, not but, but, paying for the half of the rest of the world to get a bunch of basically free drugs. That's one well, do you think major that, thing. What, like what he was talking about, about, you know, having to use a particular brand of insulin or whatever your medical device might want. Do you think that all stems from lawsuits? Because if somebody else uses a different kind of, uh, you know, formulation and it doesn't work, then they get blamed. I, I That's mean, right. Or they get I, right. But I, I feel like, like in case like the printer thing. It's like I should be able to put whatever kind of printer ink I want in my printer, and it should work. It shouldn't get an upgrade that makes it unusable if I don't use their ink. That, to me, is 
a big overreach on yeah, the I, side I, of the company. And it's interesting because in in the 60s or 70s, Xerox tried to do this. They they tried to force people in business to try to use a certain use. They had their printers and they had to use their products exclusively. And it was a contractual thing, and that was antitrust. So mm. how they're allowing this to go go get along is is very interesting because it's counter to that idea certainly or the the spirit of that. Mm. Sure, absolutely. So yeah, it's a it's a very complicated world that we live in, isn't it? Yeah, apparently it is. But that's see that's I agree with you on all these things that all of a sudden you have to do everything I tell you to do or you can't use the equipment that I just sold you. Yeah. It makes that's really disgusting. It's really, really disgusting. Well, but there are a million different know. kinds of printers. Just don't buy that printer. Well, yeah, but he's remember what he said. He said it was an update, and they snuck that in. Yeah, yeah, it was an update. So you might already know. own the equipment. Pretty amazing mm-hmm. that this is even going on. It's just a situation where look, I've talked about this before. I do think that digital is one of the most overrated things in history for the proletariat because we're being manipulated by digital so badly it is unbelievable. The things that we we get forced upon us by digital, and that, of course, would be people savaging you on digital media right. or, you know, you got Alexa listening to everything you do. And by the way, now, apparently... Uh, videoing everything you do as well on the newer units. Good God. They know all your private information. They know all these things. And what I really love about it is after waiting with, in, you know, like television and radio and all the, you know, all the, uh, you know, media, mm-hmm. uh, they wait it now. And like one person's opinion is the basis for about 10,000 people. Really? I mean, come on. Really? That's what you're doing now. I know half of the news stories are like some person makes a tweet with, like, 10 likes, and pe- their news is reporting it as if this is, like, the new thing. And right. people believe it no. because they're dumb. Yeah, they manipulate every single thing in the world now by moving around digital numbers. People that don't even exist, and by that I mean they weight things now. They add people who don't even exist to just what they call create a, a, an even and a level playing field. It's like, give me a break. It's to manipulate business, and there is no question it's to manipulate business. It's disgusting. Well, such is life, right? Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I understand why he would write this book, because I think everybody's frustrated with all kinds of different aspects, because you know he's got some beliefs about you know things that maybe other people don't believe, which is fine. But at least he's trying to do, you know, he's trying to do something by writing about it. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Because I, I just feel like I'd love to do something about a lot of things, but I have no idea how to how to go about doing anything because everything's so complicated. And if you say, you know, I, like, I would like to help the homeless not have drug uh, problems, then what do you mean? That means you're a horrible person and you're against homelessness. I mean, you can't – it's like you can't have conversations with anybody. No, that's very, very true. Unless you're giving them money. Then they're happy to talk to you. Yeah, they love that. Yes, everybody loves that. So there's no – Cash in the barrel. There's no (laughs) collective – that's a cash in the barrel. It makes people talk. Uh, There's no collective. You can't create a collective of of maybe common ideas or similar ideas or say let's move ahead in this direction trying to help this this sort of situation. 
You're right. It, yeah. It's, 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 it's splintered. splintered politics is what they've tried to do and they've created. Well, and that's exactly what digital has done is separated all of us. And that's what it intended to do, by the way. We all hate one another on digital. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's yes. disgusting. Everybody hates everyone else, and that's exactly what... Uh, divide and conquer. I mean, that's exactly what they're doing with digital now, and they're getting away with it. They're stealing your information. They're selling your information. It's just really over the top how bad this has gotten, don't you think? Yes, I agree. Oh, well, time to move on before our heads explode, but, you know... That's- Uh, This one's rich. This is a a hell of a a headline. Uh, Bill Cosby, you know, he's had some bad behavior in the past. I don't know if you know that or not. (laughs) Uh, Bill Cosby slams his insurance company's egregious behavior. How about your your egregious behavior? (laughs) You're a hell of a guy to point out someone else's behavior. I will tell you that. Wow. That's, uh, that's a hell of a road to hoe there, pal. You're going to talk about somebody else's egregious behavior? Bill Cosby says his insurance company is settling another accuser's lawsuit without his permission a week before his scheduled deposition. Cosby, in a statement, accuses American International Group Incorporated of egregious behavior. He says he could have proven he was in New York during the alleged 2008 encounter with the 18-year-old Chloe Goines at the Playboy Mansion in Los Angeles, reports the AP. Goines says Cosby drugged and molested her. Cosby was set to give a deposition in the case in prison next week. Lawyer Craig Goldenfarb says Goines is pleased with the confidential settlement. An AIG spokesman says the insurer has no comment. The 81-year-old Cosby is serving a 3- to 10-year prison term near Philadelphia for sexually assaulting a woman in 2004. So, uh, yeah, he it's other people's egregious behavior by paying off someone that you uh, basically raped. That's good, Bill. Really nice. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's like, it's Isn't like- it just a... It's like the uh, the refugee in Syria who's now who, who went to join ISIS and yeah. has been evicted from ISIS is now in a in a, a refugee camp and she's outraged that she doesn't have the luxuries that she expected from a third world or first world country in this in this place. She's outraged. You know, she didn't have showers before, but oh now she's outraged. She doesn't have a shower, proper facilities. So. Well, a lot of people read well, that yeah. someone is outraged, and for some reason they instantly assume that person must be in the right, because you only get outraged if you have a good reason. But that's not right. true at all, but it's what people think. Yeah, yeah, it's just... I don't I don't really understand how much longer we're going to tolerate all this hatred, because 99% of it is fake anyway. People don't really hate you, they're just tough guys on a keyboard, right? Yeah. I mean, Nobody, you're going to waste all your time in life hating everyone else on Facebook or Twitter. What the hell's wrong with you? Well, Calm I think down. a lot of people are, you know, I, I think that they're they're frustrated with their lives. And it, it's mostly, I would think, from a lack of their own self-esteem, why they have to be so horrible to others yeah. on social media. No, it makes total sense. You're, I, I just, I really wish they would just calm down with the whole shooting match and just stop with all that. You know, you said this, and I. Well, they never said that. You're making it up. But uh, if you need somebody to get pissed off, then just make something up and blame it on someone else. Because well, there's a lot of that going on too. It's like people seek it though. They seek the drama and yes, the the combativeness oh, yeah. of it. Because I'll get random mm-hmm. message from people people that I don't even know on Facebook saying, "Block me. I'm a horrible person." 
Um, you know, you want to burn me in hell? And I'm like, what? uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, but have a nice day. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I no, don't, that's exactly You it. know, it's like they seek it. They're they're trying to fish mm-hmm. for something to fight about. I, I don't understand it. No, you're absolutely right. Oh. You're 100% right. It's just that it makes no sense to me, and they're just... Well, like I said, I haven't been on it now in over six years, going on seven years. I don't miss it one bit. I do miss talking to listeners on stuff on social media. Mm-hmm. And actually, I will tell you, it does hurt the show, I think. I think it hurts this show and the morning show that I don't talk to people on social media because they depend on communication through social media so much now. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I mean, everybody's on social media, so I don't know if some point I'm going to have to get back on it or not. I don't want to. Well, you know, Tom, I mean, they... The, they can call into the show to 952-800-1492 to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They could do that. That would be good. I wouldn't mind that at all. But, um, yeah, the whole thing right now, it's just that the world, uh, you know, I, Ralph, I was going to say this. That it reminds me of being a teenager back in the 60s when everyone hated everyone else and we were at war yep. and people were getting killed in the streets and our leaders were all being shot to death and the neighborhoods in 1968 were all being burned down and America was a horrible time. But at least your friends wouldn't tell you how much they hated you on electronic <laughs> and on social media. You know what I mean? Yeah, they weren't after you, they, you know, in no. that vehicle. You're right. I think it's gotten even worse, well, unfortunately. I always say you look to the, t- you know, you look at the boss. The bosses of America, our politicians, mm-hmm. are all a bunch of whining, complaining malcontents. Not a president. Who not have a- nothing good to say about anybody. <laughs> oh, I guess so. You're right. <laughs> you know? You're right. Well, that's, well, that's true. You, and, yeah, that's, that's the way it is. Everybody's whining. You know, Obama whined because... Uh, because uh, Bush didn't do it right and left him with a mess, and then uh, Trump from right. whining, whining about everything. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know that's been that's been going on for and everybody. You know, but, but there has been so much hatred in politics. I, and I said I, so many elections have been based on hatred. Mm-hmm. You know, I hate I hate this person because I right now right. I'm going to vote for this other party because I hate this person. It isn't because of politics. It isn't because of issues and ideas it's because i hate this person so i just uh, I, I, I don't know maybe it's going to take a grassroots uh, kind of movement for people to just be like you know what if you're going to be a negative person who can't get anything accomplished while you're in office you just have to go i don't care what policy or pol- political party you belong to i'm just gonna i'm going to just get you out of here we're all going to just go and vote out the negative mm-hmm. malcontents so that we can have some positive people that can move forward wouldn't that make some sense yeah. i would like that does it, is anybody going to embrace somebody who's positive positive because oh you're positive you must be weak well that's another thing that people Ber- think. bernie sanders he, you know i mean i don't have anything against him you know i, I Personally, I mean, I, I think that he, you know, is trying to do something for people. Uh, I don't know. I mean, but when he's asked about uh, about policy, he he says, oh, the, oh, somebody asked him if uh, he would he was going to pay more taxes because he was making so much more money with the with his books now that he had made. You know, he's making like five hundred thousand plus now, and um, instead of answering the question. Instead of saying, sure, I'll, I'll, pay, I'll pitch in more taxes, he says, well, what about Donald Trump? Of he course. hasn't even released I his tax. It's it. like that wasn't the 
question. It's a, it has to start with you instead of everything is a what about. What about him? What about – it's like what are you going to do? What are right. these brilliant policies? Free Medicare for all? Great, as long as you can fund it. Right, exactly. That, I mean, that's exactly right. And how are you going to fund it? Those are the questions that nobody can come up with any answers to, but all they do is complain about everything that we already have. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely a fact. And that's I, it just makes me really sad that so many highly educated people are that stupid. Seriously, you keep this stuff moving forward, moving forward. It is, you have to get your message across by using other people's fear and hatred. That's disgusting. Vote them out. We shall be right back in a couple of minutes with the family. What are the things you want to avoid when it comes time to sell your home? Hey, it's Tom with my realtor, Chris Lindahl. If you're like most people, it's things like open houses, staging, decluttering, repairs, maintenance, and all the people coming through your house. Hey, Tom, the Guaranteed Offer Program from Chris Lindahl Real Estate was created for people like you so that you can avoid the things that you don't like doing when it comes time to sell your home. We have been presenting offers for homes in most price ranges. Homeowners are loving our guaranteed offer program, especially how much money they are making on their home sale without the inconveniences. So this program is for all price ranges and conditions, including perfectly maintained homes? Most homes do qualify. To see if your home qualifies, go to chrislindahl.com and click Get Offer right now. Will you be the next homeowner to accept an offer from our guaranteed offer program? Find out now. If you qualify, you will get an offer in 48 hours or less, and the best part is you get to pick a closing date that is convenient for you and close in as little as three weeks. Go to chrislindahl.com right now to see if you qualify or call 763-401-SOLD. That is 763-401-SOLD. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry. This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Saber and Bryant, whatever it takes. Do, 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 do. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we're back. Tell me when Randall's ready to go, if you would, Andy. He's ready. All right. Well, he's ready. Okay. Randall Sullivan, The Curse of Oak Island, the story of the world's <laughs> longest treasure hunt. I want to go on a treasure hunt, Randall. Well, there's no better place than that little island off the coast of North Scotia. So what, what is this all about now? Okay, from longtime Rolling Stone contributor, uh, contributing editor and journalist Randall Sullivan, the curse of Oak Island explores the curious history of Oak Island and the generations of individuals who've tried and failed to unlock its secrets. Why Oak Is this, are these a lot, a lot of folk tales or why are people so interested in Oak Island? Well, something really happened on Oak Island. Something fantastic happened there at least 250 years ago. What it was is still really a matter of speculation. There is evidence to point this way and that, but there's no getting around the fact that somebody did extraordinary work on the island in the distant past with primitive tools that must have taken, even, even 50 people working full-time would have taken a year to do it. 
Really? In 1795, a teenager discovered a mysterious circular depression in the ground on Oak Island in Nova Scotia, Canada. Ignited rumors of buried treasure. Early excavators uncovered a clay-lined shaft containing layers of soil interspersed with wooden platforms. But when they reached a depth of 90 feet, water poured into the shaft and made further digging impossible. Uh, since then, the mystery of Oak Island's money pit has enthralled generations of treasure hunters. So, so going back, so what is this all about? Uh, uh, this is amazing, uh, well, man. What, it is. What what happened? I mean, I'll I, briefly tell you the, the story that we can that I think I've verified pretty thoroughly. Um, in 1795, a 16-year-old boy named Daniel McGinnis uh, was on Oak Island, which is just off. It's it's relatively close to the shoreline in Mahone Bay, okay. on the southern shore of Nova Scotia. And um, he came on a place, and it was famous for being covered with oak trees well, up to that point. So he came on um, the stumps of some old oaks that had been cut down and new oaks were growing, which seemed strange. I mean, someone had, had somebody logged it, and then he noticed that there was, the whole thing was inside a circular depression. Um, so he immediately convinced himself and his two friends, also teenagers, that it, uh, there was a treasure, a pirate treasure buried there wasn't as far-fetched as it might sound to us because Mahone Bay was a pirate haven all during the 1600s and 1700s. Many, many tales of buried pirate treasure, and some have actually been found. Um, but what they found when they dug here was um, they got down 10 feet, struck wood, thought that they had hit a treasure chest, but it turned out to be a platform of logs with the ends jammed into the uh, the shaft and the shaft had clearly been dug out. It was all soft dirt inside and hard rock hard walls on the outside, perfect circle. Um, so then they, they keep digging, go down another 10 feet, hit wood again. And this must be the treasure chest, except it's not, it's another platform. At that point, they're 20 feet down, look up and realize they could be buried alive with even a minor collapse. So they, uh, climb out, cover it up, and go looking you know, for somebody who will finance a real search. It takes them a few years, but they do, and uh, an expedition is mounted. You know, they sit to keep a big crew and equipment sails on a schooner to Nova Scotia. They return to that pit and start digging, and they hit wooden platforms at 30 feet, at 40 feet, at 50 feet, at 60 feet, at 70 feet, at 80 feet, and at 90 feet, they find one with a big slab of stone on top of it. They turn the stone over, and there's some kind of carving, symbols, letters, some, some kind of something, coded language. They remove the stone, and that seems to have triggered a flood system because by the next morning, the shaft is filled with seawater. There are clearly tunnels uh, leading into the shaft that are flooding it, and that flooding it really stymied team after team of uh, uh, expeditions that came to Oak Island to try to figure it out and, and get what they believed had to be a treasure down there. God, it's a, what a story. And I don't even want to mention the names. I want to hear it from you, uh, beginning with the Boston insurance salesman, and a couple of very, very famous people got involved with this whole thing as well. That's, that's true. I mean, the most famous who was really serious involved was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, who... <laughs> It had actually been passed down in his family lore that the crown jewels of France were what were buried on Oak Island. It came from his maternal grandfather. <clears throat> but so he he was a young uh, law clerk on Wall Street and had a chance to invest in an Oak Island 
um, expedition in the early 20th century. So he did and then convinced his friends to go with him to Nova Scotia to join the excavation. Um, and he was so enraptured by the whole thing that he remained an Oak Island aficionado the rest of his life. He, even when he was president of the United States, trying to get us out of the Great Depression and then into World War II, he was corresponding regularly with the people on Oak Island about what was going on there. It, it fascinated him that deeply. It is so amazing, though, that, that, that you talk about a Boston insurance salesman whose obsession ruined him. You already mentioned FDR, Errol Flynn, yeah. the film star. Uh, once these stories start, and I guess you couldn't really call it a story because there's actual physical evidence that something went on there, right? Absolutely. Something did go on there. I mean, the, the um, if, I mean, there's e at least equally amazing as the, uh, what's known as the money pit, that shaft I described, is uh, the artificial beach that was created on the south shore of the island. I mean, it's it's an astounding thing with I mean, tons of sand and gravel were removed, and then a, a whole pad of what is probably coconut fiber was placed underneath. Actually, that, all what that did was insulate these very elaborately made box drains that, that kept water flowing towards the money pit area, but just just doing that, the work of that, would have probably taken, you know, 40 men half a year. I mean, it was a huge task. And, and the many other bizarre and strange things that were done on Oak Island, and you know, we, we, it, there's endless speculation about why and what it was for, and, uh, but that, that had happened, there is no doubt. God, it just the theories abound as to what's hidden on Oak Island, pirate's treasure, Marie Antoinette's lost jewels. You mentioned that. The Holy Grail proof that, Sir, uh, proof that Sir Francis Bacon was the true author of Shakespeare's plays. Yet to this day, the money pit remains an enigma. I mean, those are some pretty good stories. Who, who keeps coming up with these stories of what actually is there? I mean, the, all the way, uh, again, from, from, you know, the hidden treasure to Sir Francis Bacon, that, that Shakespeare was just a, a con artist or a, or a, a fraud. Where, where do all these stories come from, Randall? Well, I mean, sometimes they come from people with a vested interest or a deep belief in some particular uh, idea. But, but, I mean, for, for years, for, for just about a century, everyone thought it was pirate treasure. And then uh, when it became obvious that, that you know, pirates would have never done something like this to conceal money, I mean, booty, <clears throat> you know, so many other ideas about who and what it was developed. But also, I mean, the, the search has turned up things that, that people use. I mean, they're just fragments of evidence, but they, you know, the people who say, aha, that indicates this, and, they, and you, you can't dismiss it, or I can't, because there's enough there there to make you say, well, it's possible. I mean, I, I was very dismissive of the whole Knights Templar story and, and the, right. you know, the Holy Grail or, or the Ark of the Covenant. But, you know, the summer before last, they found this 13th century cross on the island that is an exact match, a very unusual cross, because uh, it's like a human figure in, made into a cross. And it, but it matches exactly something that was drawn on the wall at Dom Prison by the, where the Knights Templar were held in the 1300s. So, you know, how does that happen? And, and so, yeah, that's, that's something where I had to say, all right, we can't dismiss that one either. And, and it really, it's, it, there, there are fewer theories you can eliminate than there are that you can uh, uh, say there's something to. 
God, it's there. There, I suppose the the possibilities are endless, but it just. I guess that's part of part of being uh, a human being. You start as a children, uh, started start as children, and you have this idea that you're gonna, you know, uh, you're gonna find some treasure someday, and it's gonna change your life. And that, so, as as a youth, I remember thinking about all that stuff, you know, because of Treasure Island and all things like that. You know, you go, oh, I wonder if that's really true. There, and there obviously are many, many places on Earth. There are. Buried treasure, hidden treasure, under the sea, certainly. There's who knows how much money's down there. But it does fascinate people. I'll work really, really hard to discover buried treasure, but I don't want to work that hard to earn a living at a job. It's kind of, you know, I understand it's a lot more interesting to dig for treasure than it is to show up. Yeah, well, it's a lot more exciting, a lot more fun. yeah. And, it, you know, you're, you're, there's something about the, the pull of a mystery, an unsolved mystery that just, you know, it's like, you know, works like gravity on the human imagination. It's just drawn to it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, a lot of these a lot of these people, I mean, they've been substantial people. They weren't, you know, like some, you know, desperate fringe character. I mean, you know, the guy who's been maybe the most significant figure in the last half century was a high, highly successful building contractor in uh, Miami, you know, built bridges and things on that scale. And he decided, oh, I, once he heard, found out about Oak Island, though, that it just obsessed him. Solving that problem became the focus of you know, the last 50 years of his life. Oh, Randall, are there, are there other cases of, the, you know, some island treasure that was finally discovered and it turned out to be this huge amount of uh, you know, money or property that was worth a lot of money. How, how many times has that actually happened in the last, say, 200, 250 years? Does it happen quite often that people find hidden treasure? People do find treasures. In fact, people have found buried treasures, you could call them, in that area in Nova Scotia, but nothing on the scale of, I mean, the, the really right. big treasures have been on shipwrecks. Uh, I mean, and there have been gigantic treasures on uh taken from, you know, Spanish galleons that, you know, hit a reef in the 1600s or something. But right. in that area, it's been, but it, but it, uh, there was like a, uh, there was a cache of somebody and it may very well have been a pirate uh, very near Oak Island. And, and it, it was, this was like in the early 20th century and it would be worth, you know, well over a million dollars today. But Obviously, a mere million dollars wouldn't motivate what's going on on Oak Island. They spend a million dollars on the right. island every year, at least. So, Randall, what, who would actually own, if there were treasure uncovered in Nova Scotia, who would actually own that treasure? Just because you dug it up doesn't mean it's well, yours, it's, right? It's well, actually, in this case, it mostly does. There, Canada oh, okay. has an, an, an Oak Island it has an, a single law governing just that little island that says that uh, the, the treasure hunters, if they have all the legal permits and everything, which they do, get 90% of what's ever recovered as long as they give 10% to the government. Um, so the Lagina brothers and their partners, who are really who control the island and the treasure hunt, mm-hmm. would be able to, you know, if, if it was money, they could put it in their pocket. But if it's the Ark of the Covenant, I don't think anybody's going to, you know, no government on earth is going to let them keep that. So, so no, I, the Holy Grail, how, 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 
I don't, I don't know how the government gets 10% of that, but um, or settles for 10% of that. So, you know, I, you know, the Laginas, especially one of them in particular, I mean, is quite wealthy. It's not, it's not about money for them. It's about solving the mystery. Now, see, that's what my ne- next question would be. How expensive is it to look for it in the first place? It's got to cost a fortune, doesn't it? Well, it, it always did cost a lot, but they've done it. What they've been spending since, uh, well, since the television show became hugely popular. Uh, I mean, they're doing projects on a scale that's really mind-boggling. I was there in September, and they had built a dam that help, holds back the Atlantic Ocean so that they can examine, you know, ground that was un, that was above land that was dry ground, you know, 300 years ago and is now underwater. Um, and that alone cost a million bucks. And they've done other things God. that were equally, if not more expensive. That is unbelievable. The Curse of Oak Island, the story of the world's longest treasure hunt. Randall Sullivan, thank you for your time. Fascinating story. I think these stories, people love these stories because you go, well, maybe. We don't know, but maybe. I think it's fascinating. I really do. I appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Randall Sullivan, ladies and gentlemen. You guys ever look for treasure? I've never looked for treasure. I don't have one of those those mine things, mine sweepers that they use on, uh, on beaches. Metal detector? Metal detector. Mine sweeper. Whatever it is. Yeah, uh, you're not an octogenarian yet either, so it's fine. <laughs> well, Just wait. That's true. 70th birthday, that's what that's you're getting. That's absolutely true. <laughs> I, have, I have a really great idea. What? So you could get your paycheck, um, put it in a put it in a treasure chest, mm-hmm. throw it, you know, dig it up every week, and then they can only take ten percent. What do you think? I like it. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. We'll ruminate that, and we'll talk to you tomorrow with the family. 